Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. So what is Russia's endgame in Ukraine with troops seemingly bogged down, stuck, retreating, recalibrating, reframing, peace negotiations far from over, far from clear if they're meaningful or just uh, theater? What's next for Vladimir Putin? What happens next for Ukraine? Brad Garrett is crime and terrorist analyst for ABC News and joins us now to break down some of the endgame possibility in Putin's war on Ukraine. Brad, thanks for joining us today. Uh, good afternoon, boy. So, as you look at this, uh, analyze it in terms of the end game possibilities. The, the first question I have for you, Brad, is: Is this kind of classic Europe war of when you get to the peace table, basically whatever you have is what you get to keep and, until the next war? Well, sort of. I mean, that usually takes months to to get to that point. I'm not convinced that uh, anything's going to get resolved in these peace negotiations because I don't think Putin wants to get it resolved yet. Mm. And, you know, what's his end game? If you ask me to guess his end game basically is that he may well not want to to control all of Ukraine. He wants to control parts of Ukraine, mm-hmm. like uh, to the south, uh, into the Black Sea, the cities like Odessa, um, Mariupol, those um control those control these other territories like Crimea that he's been controlling for several years or portions of it um mainly to get natural resources gas oil uh, like i said this strategic location of the south as far as uh, putting the russian, russian military there also being able to control import exports uh into the black sea so my guess is at some point he'll call that but we'll see um you know, he, you, you can't really underestimate him, but it's also difficult to sort of really figure out what his end game is. He doesn't seem to be in any hurry. Uh, he's apparently, according to reporting, that he's lost several thousand troops. Um, and his military, as you pointed out earlier, does, doesn't seem to be really hitting the ball in any significant way um, and have moved, supposedly, um, to other locations within, maybe to the east in Ukraine. So, um, you, you could this continue on in what I would call a bloody stalemate? It's quite possible. possible. I don't see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't see a victory on any either side or a sustainable peace agreement because I don't think Putin will abide by a peace agreement, um, at least now. Yeah. Uh, and this whole thing about splitting Ukraine basically into a version of North and South Korea. 
I, you know, I, I, I do think that's possible, but we'll just have to wait and see. The short answer is, I don't think this is going to be over soon and has really got the sort of the earmarks of getting much uh, bloodier. Yeah. Uh, and uh, just to your point there, Brad, just to dig in a little bit on uh, kind of that splitting up, uh, if if Vladimir Putin uh, went the end game, kind of the Crimea, Luhansk, Donetsk, Odessa, Mariupol, those, those kind, and then you'd sort of have this western Ukraine um, that really would sort of end up... Uh, needing a whole lot of NATO uh, help in order to just kind of survive because all of those rich resources uh, would be in Russia's control. Right. I mean, and without access to the Black Sea, let's say, in other words, they would landlock basically Western um, Ukraine, potentially. Um, I don't know how they would survive. I mean, they would potentially turn into a welfare state. I can't see Zelensky agreeing to that, but... You know, as he mentioned just a few moments ago, that 90 percent of uh, Mariupol has been leveled. Mm. He thinks there's thousands of people buried under those high rise buildings. Um, And just to give that as an example of what Putin's willing to do and will continue to do, because I'll tell you, this stuff does not phase him. Mm. You know, he believes that it's his to take and he's going to take it. And at this point. No one's going to stop it. Yeah. So as, as you look at that possibility of this uh, really dragging out, uh, what are the things, uh, Brad, that uh, with, with your trained eye, what are the things that you're watching for that might be some indicators that things might be tipping one way or the other? You know, if, if Putin starts talking, you know, they made this comment that they were pulling troops away from Kiev, which is mostly a lie, it sounds like to me. I mean, they're, they're, they're actually still shelling Kiev, mm. um, according to the reporting. Um, is there really a significant move, quote-unquote, to the east, um, and that he talks in more definitive terms about what, uh, what he wants and what he's going to keep? I mean, that, that, only he's going to be satisfied with that, of course. But that, that at least that's you have you at least kind of know where he stands because at this point you don't really know, uh, and you know to, and to be quite honest maybe he doesn't know uh, as poorly as his army has been functioning on the ground so so we'll see, but to your to your question I just you, we're going to have to get more definitive information out of Putin. Uh, to sort of see where this stands. Yeah, and, and uh, final question for you, Brad, before I let you go. Uh, in, in terms of NATO, uh, what do you see happening there? Does does NATO get tired? Does NATO pull back? Uh, wh- what does that look like? What are you watching for there? Well, I don't see NATO and or you know us, since we're part of NATO, uh, cutting back on weaponry, uh, you know, anti-assault weapons, anti-tank weapons, you know, stingers, fill in the blank, javelins. Uh, I still see us providing a lot of that kind of stuff to the Ukrainian army. Um, and I don't know, you know, what will be interesting to see if there's any like private reinforcements, not U.S. military type. You know, Putin apparently... There's a whole, this is a different conversation for you and I to have because we don't have time, that basically there is a private army that Putin has. It's called the Wagner Group, which is a bunch of mercenaries that run all over Africa, controlling countries over there for Putin. Apparently they're sending a bunch of them to Ukraine that will do 
untold things beyond maybe even what the military would do. So, mm. you know, stand by for that because that yeah. could be another big slaughter. Yeah. And then just real quick, I'm going to sneak in one more because I can. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Is this an opportunity or do you see any indication that uh, what is happening in Ukraine, that it impacts uh, Europe uh, as a whole? Do, do those NATO allies uh, suddenly realize that uh, they they can't always wait on the, the U.S. to supply whatever, whether it's the technology or the armament or whatever? Uh, is this a moment for, for Europe to kind of gather itself and say, one, Putin doesn't look to be 10 feet tall and bulletproof like we thought he was, and maybe we can do more of this uh, from the front as opposed to having the U.S. lead on a lot of these things? Well, maybe, but you have to keep one big thing in mind. <clears throat> Putin has a huge stick <clears throat> when it comes to gas and oil. <clears throat> he supplies, and some of those countries in, in Europe, he supplies over half of their you know, oil and gas needs. So can they get through the winter without Putin? And the answer is no. And clearly, China, on the other side, gets an unbelievable amount of gas and oil from him every day. So, you know, that's the dilemma you have here. Do you want to cut him off? I don't think the Chinese want to cut him off, but, you know, would Europe want to cut him off? Well, what are they going to do to replace that? See, that's the problem. Yeah. And and Putin knows that, you know, and that's why he's, you know, he's going to continue to do what he does, does because he's got the big stick right now. Yeah. Uh, great insight as always. Uh, Brad Garrett joining us from ABC News. Appreciate your perspective. Uh, we'll have you back again real soon. Take care, boy. All right. Again, that's Brad Garrett, uh, crime and terrorism analyst for ABC News. Uh, important stuff as you look at possibilities, possible end games uh, for what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, none of them look really good or really fast. Uh, and for the Ukraine and for the Ukrainian people, uh, that means there's still more suffering yet ahead. All right, we're going to step aside for bottom of the hour news. Many Utahns have a strong interest in family history and genealogy. I sat down with our very own Debbie Dejanovic to talk about her new special, which will run during conference weekend, which profiles the amazing story of two sisters and what they learned through their genealogy. We'll have that conversation coming up next. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andreas Martin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.